Hey guys, welcome back to the Dad Tired Podcast. You may have just stumbled upon this podcast randomly, or maybe a friend sent it to you and you're totally new here. Just want to say welcome to you if you're just now discovering Dad Tired. We're glad you're here, man. We're a community of guys who we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we do take our role as husband, father, and disciple pretty seriously. And so we're trying to figure out what it looks like to be the men God's called us to be. So that's what we do every week. We have this podcast where we really just talk about marriage and us as men, fathers, basically any topic that makes sense for us becoming the men that God's called us to be. So anyway, I hope it's helpful for you. If you're just discovering Dad Tired, it's more than a podcast. we got a community online off of social media. It's our own little app where we just talk to each other, encourage each other, guys meet up with each other. It's a pretty cool thing. You can go to dadtired.com forward slash community or just click the community tab when you go to dadtired.com. You'll see that there and you can join that. We'd love to have you over there. We also do conferences and retreats and all kinds of stuff throughout the year. So anyway, just want to say welcome. Glad you're here. If you're a longtime listener, thanks for jumping in every week. Appreciate you and love you. And uh, yeah, I'll stop rambling now and get out of the way and we'll jump into today's episode. So today we're jumping into a conversation that I think in probably our culture is one of the most, I don't know, prolific or confusing Maybe the word, better word is like it's the most universally accepted mistruth that we believe, maybe the most universally accepted lie. And I think as our culture continues to move more and more post-Christian and as our, as kind of the temperature of the water continues to move towards inclusivity in a lot of areas that are very helpful, you know, and moves towards even equality in some areas that historically looking at the history of our country needs to be done. It needs to move towards something that is equal sometimes what can happen is the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater and the whole wave, the tidal wave that's moving in one direction of equality can in some ways then grab Christianity with it, can grab the gospel with it and bring it along. And we call that process syncretism. Syncretism is where you take the gospel of Christ, which at its core is offensive and exclusive. And it says, hey, dear Bible, what if you did the same thing our culture is doing? What if you were less exclusive? What if you were more inclusive? What if you gave more permission for the nuance of different things? And in the Bible, it says in the book of Hebrews that, that the scriptures and the word of God is, it's never changing and it's sharper than any double-edged sword, able to separate bone from marrow and sinew and flesh. And it cuts at the heart at the believer. And it says the character of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so one of the more important questions, I think, as our culture moves towards inclusivity in all things. And again, a lot of those things can be beneficial as we move towards equality in all things. And a lot of those things can be beneficial. It's important to know that when we try to shoehorn Christianity to do that same thing, when we force Christianity into boxes it's not meant to be in, we end up forsaking the gospel. We end up forsaking the truth of Jesus on the altar of modern syncretism. We end up saying, instead of agreeing with the truth of scripture, we want to mold almost like Plato, the, the Bible, to saying what we want to say. And, and here's a great example of the question we'll be looking at today. Do all belief systems lead to salvation? Here's probably the emotional argument that you can make. And, and when you hear someone say it, it's, it's pretty tantalizing. As an apologist, as a pastor who gets to, I have the privilege of speaking in a lot of places and even doing different apologetics conferences and teaching to young adults and whatnot. I I get a lot of people come up to me and and this is the most awkward way that they put it because they come up to you and they do it with such respect and, but then they start speaking for you. And I had a student come up to me one time and he said, he goes, I listened to an Islam imam speak the other day and they talked about the love of God and the love of neighbor and all these things. And 
And then I came and I heard you talk tonight at this church service. And I think what's so crazy is that we have all these cultural divides between Christians and Muslims and Mormons. And and you know what? When I hear you talk about Jesus and I hear this imam talk about Allah, and it just occurred to me, we're all talking about the same God. We are just using different routes to get there. And he used this analogy of a house on a hill and that someone takes a gondola to the top and another person takes the windy road about the backside and and someone else takes a well-trenched pattern up the side of the hill with an ATV and, and the fourth still drops in by helicopter and they all can call the avenues whatever they want, but they're all arriving at the same house. And he was excited to give me this analogy and And it's hard because someone who's, (laughs) you don't want to like burst their bubble, but at the same time, you don't want them walking away thinking something that's false. And so I just, I just had to tell him, I I said, I think your view of these things is great in the sense that I do think that all major religions at their core are teaching at some level, love of God and love of neighbor with obviously different nuances and motivations and outcomes for sure. But I said, but what you're not appreciating is you're not appreciating where the belief systems are different. And really, that is wherein lies the rub. It's not where the belief systems are the same. It's where the belief systems are different. And so what I want to kind of talk through today is this growing trend that that we're seeing, especially as dads in our culture and as, as spiritual leaders of, of both our families and of the Christian church and of culture in general. And this is a pretty shocking thing that I discovered it's a Barna survey that found that 59% of American adults believe that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, even though they have, they have different names and beliefs regarding him. 59% of all of Americans believe that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, even though they have different names and beliefs regarding God. And this is perhaps more shocking. One quarter, that's 25% of all born again Christians who would make a profession of faith. They've given their life over to Jesus. They're walking with God. One quarter of born-again Christians say that all people will eventually be saved or accepted by God. All people. That's a claim of universalism, that as as long as we're making some attempt to pursue some kind of spirituality or some kind of higher power, that we're going to be saved, and that it doesn't matter what religion you or faith you follow because they all teach the same basic lessons, said 26% of all Americans. An even larger percent of born-again Christians, 40%, indicated they believe Christians and Muslims worship the same God. That's almost a coin flip of born-again Christians who thinks that, think that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And this is a view, I think, that if you hold it up against the claims of Scripture, the problem isn't in the philosophy of it from afar. The problem is when you really get into the muck and the mire of theology and, and really understand the differences in belief systems, the idea that there's more than one way to God or that all different belief systems, that there's like that popular bumper sticker that some people have and it says coexist and the C is like a spiritualized moon and the V is part of like the Jewish star of David and the T is the cross of Jesus Christ and and so it's basically a call for that that all belief systems are the same and and while I think that the Bible teaches again and again and again and again and again respect for love towards our friends and other belief systems that in no way equates them as equal in measure as terms of truth or in terms of salvific value. That means their ability to save you. That Jesus makes some really, really, really exclusive and bold claims when it comes to who he is and what he has done. That if you have the nerve to say all belief systems are the same, 
I would like to make the case that you're making three very terminal errors in Christian judgment if you say that all belief systems lead to the same, lead to heaven, or that someone can be saved just by faith in one of those gods, or or as long as we're all attempting to seek the same God, then we're going to be saved. And I understand, I, I really do get the culture that we live in. Like, I live in Southern California. So I am at, I'm at like the, the spearhead of understanding how offensive that truth claim is that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way to heaven and that no one else will get there unless it's through him. So I understand that. But please, before you turn it off or send it an angry email, let me just let me finish this idea that I think is what actually makes the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ so important because not all people will be saved by any kind of higher power. A a Jewish person will not be saved by believing in the Old Testament God while rejecting the New Testament revelation of Jesus, that we do not worship the same God as Mormons. And, And let me give you three reasons why, applying logic and theology and philosophy to this. And the first one is this, and it's probably the simplest, which is if you take the, the writings of Jesus seriously, if you take the proclamations of Jesus seriously, and the book of Hebrews says that the way we understand the God of the universe is through his son, Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus is the full revelation of the character of God. So do you want to know what the God of the Jews is like? Do you want to know what the God of all things is like? Do you want to know what that God is actually? Do you want to know what Yahweh is all about? Then look at Jesus. Jesus made these claims, John 14, verse 6. It's such a bodacious, bold, and you could say life-threatening claim. Like, this is what got the guy killed. John 14, verse 6, he says to Thomas, who asks, how are we going to know the way to heaven? Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You don't need to know extensive Greek to be able to understand this passage, but you do need to know one thing, is that there is a word in Greek for a, the indefinite article, and there's a word for the which is the definite article, right? This is the same thing as saying, imagine someone in a foreign territory saying, I am a king of this world, as opposed to I am the king of this world, right? If you have someone on, the, on a basketball team and they say, I am a great player, is very different than saying, I am the great player, right? Like just changing that one article makes a big difference. And Jesus doesn't mince words. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And and in making that proclamation, he, that definite article, he's saying that there is nothing else. There's a word for saying, I am a way. I am a truth. I am a life. There's other ways. And not only does he use the definite article, then he doubles down by contextualizing it in the next sentence. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here it comes. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one will experience paradise but through me. To be in the Father's presence is to be in heaven. That's what John 17 tells us. This is paradise. It's to know the Father and the one he has sent. So there is no heaven without Jesus. There is no heaven without nearness to Jesus. Jesus himself is heaven. I I think we probably confuse this idea a lot. Heaven isn't the place where Jesus is. Jesus is the place where heaven is. I know it's kind of think about that, and it might seem kind of like over-dogmatized or splitting hairs, but it's not splitting hairs. Heaven isn't the place where Jesus lives. Jesus is the place where heaven is. In other words, all the fullness and the power and the glory and the joy and the fun and the paradise that comes with everlasting life is not because God made this really cool place and every once in a while you'll see Jesus walking around. All of the joy and the knownness and the love and the comfort and the peace and the joy and the frivolity and the the deep sense of belonging of heaven is not because God made a really neat place that we as humans are going to experience. 
It's because that place is near to Jesus. Jesus is what makes heaven worth wanting to go to. And while that might be difficult for us to understand, I, I can just assure you, heaven without Jesus will be hell. Because what heaven is, is where God exists. And so when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father, but through me to be in the Father's presence is heaven itself. So that the Islam idea of, of paradise outside of being with Jesus is, is a foreign concept to the gospel. It's just not there. That's not the only exclusive claim that Jesus makes. He says again and again that, that he and the Father are one. He doubles down on the Old Testament belief systems that there is no God but but Yahweh, and, and that hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which obviously cancels out every polytheistic religion. And so some people would say, well, it leaves intact then Judaism and Islam because they both also believe in monotheism. Yes, but the difference is more important than what's the same. And the difference is what separates the believer and the saved from the non-saved, not what we have in common. It's like saying that because demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God, died on a cross, and raised again from death, that they will be saved. No, and the Bible makes it clear that the demons believe in Jesus and they tremble. They actually have an appropriate fear of God, which is far more than a lot of proclaimed Christians have. But it's not what we have in common with demons that is going to get us into heaven. It's, it's what we have unique from demons that will get us into heaven, namely that we trust in Jesus for salvation, that a way was made for us to get back into relationship with the Father, to be reconciled, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that Jesus became sin who knew no sin, that we as people could become his righteousness once again. It's not what we have in common with belief systems that saves us. It is what is separated that makes the claims of Jesus exclusive. There were other people in Jesus' day and age who claimed to be the Savior. Caesar himself, Julius Caesar, when his birthday was coming up, he had a season called Advent, where everyone would celebrate the birthday of, of Julius Caesar, and he claimed to be the Savior. The, the gods of Egypt claimed to be the ones who made the stars come out at night and who made the sun set and come up. It's not the claim that they made that were similar to Jesus that made them powerful. It's where Jesus was unique. It's where Jesus actually executed these things. It's where Jesus did come back from the dead. It's what is different that makes the cross of Christ unique to all of their belief systems and that makes our faith in Jesus the only way to heaven. Jesus also, he makes the proclamations in the scriptures like one person asks in the New Testament, the book of Luke, will many people be saved? Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, narrow is the gate by which people will enter into heaven and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. So when we say this idea of all people are going to be saved, and you're talking about 1.5 billion Muslims and 3 billion, 2 billion, whatever the number is, proclaimed Christians, we have to understand that Jesus made a really strong claim there, that if you've got Mormons who are in the tens of millions, and you've got Muslims who are uh, more than a billion, you've got Christians who are whatever billion, you've got Catholics, and you've got Jehovah's Witnesses, what do you do with that claim then? The majority of the world is religious. The vast majority of the world is spiritual and religious. So how do we rectify that with Jesus' claim that only a few will enter through the narrow gate? That's not the same thing. To say universally everyone's going to be saved is to call Jesus a liar. To say, well, when you said narrow is the gate and you said wide is the gate that leads to destruction and narrow is the gate that leads to heaven, I think you were mistaken, Jesus. And we know one thing, Jesus is not mistaken. So the first reason we can understand that it doesn't make sense biblically to say 
that there's more than one way to get to heaven in all humility is to understand we would have to look at the teachings of Jesus and say that he is a liar. And the claims that he makes of being the truth, his revelation, the the miracles that he performed, the book of John tells us that that, that was validity of his divinity, that, that Jesus says, I and the Father are one before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus unites himself with the God of the universe, the same God that the the people in the Old Testament were hoping to pray to, that when the Jews say, no, we worship Yahweh, but we don't worship Jesus, Jesus is saying here, no, you don't understand. I am one with Yahweh, right? It says the angel of the Lord speaks to Moses in the burning bush. So when, when Jews accept the story of the burning bush and accept the miracles of the Old Testament where Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ shows up, but they reject Jesus, they're actually not praying to the same God we pray to because our God is inseparably triune. The Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to only believe in the Father and what he has done and reject the other two is to altogether miss the triunity of God, right? It's not to say the same thing. So in a very real way, even though you use the word Yahweh, imagine if someone came up to me and they're like, Chris, we love you. And I'm like, oh, really? Wow, okay, that's neat. How do I know you? And they're like, oh, yeah, we we know your wife, Sarah, and we know that you have your 12 kids and we've loved your ministry all throughout Ethiopia. And we know that you love cats and we know that you're really into like IPAs and you really, yeah, like you're, I would sit there and I would go, um, yeah, outside of my name, none of the rest of that was true. And so if they started singing of my attributes or singing of what I loved, they started worshiping, which would be obviously completely heretical to do because I am neither divine nor worthy of the least bit of worship because I'm an idiot and a dumpster fire. But that's besides the point. You can understand the analogy here where it would be really easy to go, oh yeah, you're not talking about me. So it's easy to say that while we use the same word or we even derive our basic concept of monotheism from the Old Testament, both the, the Jew and the, and the Muslim and the Christian alike, we are not praying to or worshiping the same God. The very nature of who he is, we believe, is very different from one another. And so I don't think that the better question I think to ask isn't, are we worshiping the same God? The better question is, are we all pleasing to God? Is our worship pleasing to God? Is God accepting all of the worship of all three of them equally? And the answer to that is unequivocally no. It's not just our our empty singing and praising that makes us saved. It is the communal relationship. It's God responding to our worship, that, that he accepts our worship as worship. When a non-believer sings worship songs, does God receive it in glory? No. That person is lying. That person is a false belief. It is not received. It's what the Old Testament says. It's the, the prayers of a righteous man are heard. The worship of the redeemed is like a pleasing aroma in the nose of God. It's not just anything. It's a certain thing. It's through the cross of Christ. It's through the lens of being his children. That's why the Old Testament says that, that all of our works are like a pile of dirty rags before God. But when we are in Christ and the Spirit works through us, then all of a sudden our work as his children is pleasing to us, is pleasing in your sight, O Lord. And that's what the book of Psalm tell, teaches us too. So the lesser question is, do we all worship the same God? The more important question, because our salvation doesn't come from how eagerly or how sincerely we worship, but the real truth of worship comes from, is our worship being received by the creator of the universe? 
to throw out songs into the ether is of no importance. The question is, is that worship reaching the ear and the heart of the king of the universe? And so when you ask the question in reverse, not do we all worship the same God, but does God receive all worship as worship? Does God receive all worship equally? No. God only receives worship that is true. What does the New Testament say in the book of John chapter 4? I don't have my Bible in front of me, but I think this is it. He's talking to the woman at the well, and she says, should we worship on this mountain or that mountain, or should we worship here or there? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come where the true worshipers are not going to worship on this mountain or that mountain. That is irrelevant because the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. That means understanding both that we are worshiping out of a redemption of what God's done for us, but also that we're worshiping a true understanding of who God is. That all plays into it. So Jesus makes it clear there's only one way. That's the first point. The second thing is that truth has rules to it. And the idea of universalism breaks many of the fundamental rules of truth. So the number one point that we're making, the number one reason why there can't be more than one way is Jesus said there's not more than one way, which should be sufficient. But for a lot of us, we might want to dive a little bit deeper. And that's a theological point that we're making. And maybe if we're talking to a to a Muslim, we want to make a different point or talking to our Mormon friends and say, well, here's why these things are different. And the second thing is that Truth has rules, and universalism, or the idea that all paths lead to God, breaks many of them. And consider probably the most basic rule of truth, and that is the rule of non-contradiction, that A and not A can't be true at the same time. I can't have a sandwich in front of me and also not have a sandwich in front of me at the same time. Two plus two can't equal four, and but two plus two also doesn't equal four at the same time. That is called the rule of non-contradiction, and it's the basis of all logic. It's how we interact with each other. It's how we prove people wrong in court. It's why alibis are important. You can't both be at position A and not at position A at the same time. You can't be at the crime scene and somewhere else at the same time. So an alibi is able to, in a lot of ways, free someone of guilt or it can convict them because the rule of non-contradiction applies and and, and, and coexist or the universal principle of everyone being saved could work if all belief systems, like the old Indian proverb, that all belief systems are like part of an elephant, you know, and and the Muslim is grabbing the trunk of the elephant, and God is such a massive creature that each of our different belief systems only understands a part of who he is. And, and so the Muslim grabs the trunk of the elephant and says, God is like a rope, or God is like a hose, you know, and, and the Christians are all grasping the foot of the elephant. And getting, no, 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 you're wrong. God is like a stump. As we grab the foot, but we're blindfolded, we can't see the full picture, we're in a dark room, and each of us is grasping at this massive elephant that is God. And as we grab the elephant's foot, we say, no, God is like a tree. Our Mormon friends at the back of the elephant grab the elephant's tail and say, no, God is like a rope. And, and then our Jehovah's Witnesses friends grab the ear and say, no, God is like paper. God is like this thin parchment. And, and so a lot of times secularism or universalism looks at us in a dark room blindfolded and goes, you fools, couldn't you just see? You're all touching the same God. You just see it differently. And it makes a bunch of critical errors in judgment and in and in truth. And and the first one being, you're still that argument still supposes it still supposes that there's actually a belief system that's able to see all that and understands that we're all grasping at one part of it, which is a remarkably arrogant claim because person A is not religious, the one watching, they're not victim to understanding God only partially. And and if we just weren't religious, we could see that all religious belief systems are the same, which is to claim that irreligious people are somehow superior intellectually or superior in perspective to Christians or Muslims or Jews or whatever it is. And that, and again, that's just a horribly arrogant claim. 
And it's not backed by anything except for the idea that religious people have are less than in the way that they think. The second thing to understand when it comes to the rule of non-contradiction is if you just take the person of Jesus, and this is like every time a Mormon or a person of the Church of, the, of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints comes to my door, I love it, right? And I probably shouldn't. But I really love it because I see it as an example as a moment to evangelize. And you've got these young 20-somethings that are on their mission, and golly, are they passionate about what they're doing. But geez, are they misinformed, and um, are they under-informed, even about basic Christian teachings. And I'm kind of blacklisted now, because I feel like even when I ask fundamental questions, there's just no real answer to it. So just take the person of Jesus. And for the Christian, Jesus Christ is the God of the universe. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. If you take the, the watchtower and the New World translation from a Jehovah's Witness, they actually change that verse. In the original Greek, it, it, it uses the word tontheon. In the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God. In their Bible, they actually retranslate, and in the beginning, there was this Word, and this Word was a God. So they actually changed the original Greek, and they've actually gotten in big trouble for this because Charles Taze Russell, the guy who founded their religion, doesn't understand Greek. He couldn't even tell the Greek alphabet to a bunch of litigators that were that he was on trial. He was on trial for forgery. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. That's a whole different podcast. But anyway, you see, the person of Jesus in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus, all things were made, and without him, nothing has been made that has come into existence. So in the very first chapter of John, these are incredibly exclusive claims that Jesus and the Father revealed in the Old Testament are one and the same. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He is the only special begotten Son of the Father, but He is due all the deity and all of the worship that Colossians 1 tells us. He is the fullness. He is the character. He is the icon. He is the perfect image of the Father to us. So in Christianity, Jesus is the God of the universe who died on a cross and rose again from the dead to pay the, to pay the ransom for our sins, to undertake the punishment for our sins. And we believe that. And that's core doctrine. You can't be a Christian and not believe that. So then we ask the question, so Mormons will come up and be like, well, we believe in the same Jesus. But it's, it's kind of that analogy I used before. We can use the same name, but we don't mean the same thing. If I told you I had a friend named Jesus, and I believed he was the God of the universe, died on the cross, rose again, and he paid the price that I deserved to pay through his death, burial, and resurrection. And you said, oh yeah, Jesus. Yep. You know, I know him. In Mormon theology, Jesus is a created being. He's created by one of an infinite number of gods throughout all of existence. He doesn't have the power to create ex nihilo. God doesn't have the power to create out of nothing, that all matter is pre-existent matter, and all that the God of the universe can actually do is reform matter, and he can reconstitute things into different things, but he actually can't create out of nothing. That Jesus died on the cross to help us, as long as we're doing good works to get to heaven after all we can do, God does the rest of the work. But Jesus' brother is Satan, and they actually come from their heavenly father who used to be a man and comes from a, a star near the, a planet called Kalab. And we just start going, wait, no, 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 no. You say Jesus, we say Jesus, but we do not mean the same thing. And just in the core doctrine, is Jesus the exclusive and only God of the universe? There are no other gods before me. That's what the, the Old Testament says in, in the Psalms. There was no God formed before me, nor is there inner God after me. We believe that as Christians, Mormons believe that there's an infinite multitude of gods, both being formed before and being formed after. And Jesus is just one of a manifestation of 
heavenly father who is a God on this planet, but we all have the the power to become gods in ourselves. And our God used to be a man just like us. Well, that's not the same thing at all. And so the rule of non-contradiction says, is Jesus the exclusive God of the universe who has created all things ex nihilo? Or is Jesus a created being, son of Satan, who was part of the creation of Heavenly Father? That's non-contradiction. You can't believe both of those things, and those are both core doctrines to the beliefs. In Islam, Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but a lookalike was brought in last minute to be crucified. Okay, well, our core doctrine teaches that it was Jesus Christ himself who was killed, buried, and resurrected. And the the core belief of Islam is Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but a lookalike was brought in, and he was crucified. Okay, so which one of those is true? You can't, those two ideas don't coexist. It's they're mutually exclusive to one another. In atheism, a guy named Jesus died on the cross and stayed dead. The end. To Jehovah's Witness, Jesus was the Son of God, but not God Himself, but the Archangel Michael, and was a lesser God, though mighty, who only rose spiritually but not bodily. You see, in just those belief systems, Christianity, Mormonism, Islam, atheism, and Jehovah's Witness, we we have a complete disagreement on our fundamental core doctrine. So not only, point number one, does Jesus make it clear that he is the only way? But secondly, truth necessitates that in most of these cases, especially with Christianity, if Christianity is true, it exclusively is true. I think there's other belief systems that would permit more than one being true, or or at least ideologies, right? Like, in Buddhism, I don't think there's necessarily a claim that you must exclusively, and there's a lot of different iterations of Buddhism, but it doesn't claim that you have to. It's more of an ideology. It's more of a way of living. So it could rationally be said that someone is an atheist, but they practice all of the precepts of the Buddha. Great. Those things aren't exclusive. You can be a Buddhist who believes in these different things, but also not believe that there is a God because it's just a belief system. You could be a Taoist who also, you know, but Christianity doesn't. If you believe in the precepts and the teachings of scripture, you also believe that there's only one way to God and it's backed up by by the simple rule of logic, the rule of non-contradiction. Third, so first of all, Jesus made it clear, truth has rules, universalism breaks them. And three, if there was more than one way to God, it actually ruins the character of God. What do I mean by the character of God? First John 4, verse 7 and 8, Therefore, beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and anyone that loves is born of God and knows God. If you do not love, then you do not know God, because God is love. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, chapter 33 and 34, when God reveals himself to Moses, he passes by and then he whispers, and through his whisper becomes this powerful movement, and it, it says the glory of God is revealed, and then Moses hears Yahweh say, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, this compassionate God, but also not unwilling to punish people for the sins of their father to the third and fourth generation. And, and, it, and so God reveals himself. And then through the person of Christ, which again, Hebrew says is the perfect iteration of the character of the father. They're not two different people. God didn't get nicer in the New Testament. Jesus is the perfect character of the unchanging God of the Old Testament. And it says this, it says that Jesus teaches these precepts of kindness and love. And for sure, he stands hard on truth and and, and he makes it clear what is right. And, and why would Jesus so boldly claim that there's only one way to God? It's it's not because he's mean, it's because he loves. Imagine us all in a, in a room that's burning down and you had a path by which you knew the way out, but the only path out was actually to kill the first, your, your only beloved son. And you sat up there and you knew that there was one and only one way out of this room. All the other doors were locked and we couldn't get out. 
And then you revealed to all of mankind that the only way out is through the death of your son. And then you willingly gave up your son to be killed in order that all might escape that absolute brokenness and that torture of the pain of being burned and being killed. What would be the character of the man that said, I know the way, I know there's only one way. You can try all these doors if you want to, but there's only one way out. And if you try these other doors, you're going to find that they're all locked and it's going to lead to destruction. But if you follow the path that's made by the death of my son, then you will be saved. We would consider that guy to be very loving to, and the truth that he gave us, even though we would go like, well, how could you say that all the other doors are locked? And Jesus is saying, I'm pleading with you. If you try to do something else, it's not going to work. Follow me. If anyone wants to, to follow, to be saved, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This is what God says. But see, now here's the problem. If all the other doors were actually open, then God sacrificing his son on the cross to make just another way to heaven would take away God's character of being loving, compassionate, gentle, full of self-control, his loving kindness, his revealed nature to us of being this father figure. You see, if God killed his son just to make one more way so that he could have a new belief system, but Buddhism would have done, Mormonism would have done, Islam would have done, being a good person would have been just fine. If we all just tried to be nicer to each other, we would have been saved too. You, you understand what I'm saying? If all of those were ways to get to heaven, then if, if God sacrifices Jesus on the cross, he, he isn't a loving God. It would actually ruin his character. We would then look at God as a sadist, a God who was just out there to, to murder his child so that we could have another route See, if the only way out of that burning building was through his son, then we would look at him and we would say, thank you so much for telling us the truth that if we followed those other doors, it would have led to our destruction. And thank you for the sacrifice of your son creating the only way out and the only way to be saved. But if that man starts laughing and he goes, no, nah, I was just kidding. All those doors are open. Mormonism was open. Islam was open. Judaism was open. Those, all those doors were open. This is a sacrifice of my son. Is I, I just thought, couldn't we use one more way? You see, it actually abolishes his character, his character of love, his character of gentleness and kindness, his, even his character of being brilliant, of being creative, of being of sound mind, of, of being a comfort and a peace in times of trouble. He would become something entirely different. So those are three points to make in conclusion to say, if someone asks us, and again, this is what our kids are going to ask us. This is what our kids are going to face. And this is what a lot of us are going to have to answer, even in our own homes. Got it. Or, or dad, if God really loves us and we all are trying to seek after him, we just have the wrong idea. Is it really that big of a deal? Is it really that big of a deal that my friends believe this, even though that we're Christians and they're Mormons? Does it, does it really make that big of a difference? And I think the answer is unequivocally yes. And while our society wants to tell us that there's no true difference, when we look at the Bible, we find that Jesus makes it clear there's only one way. That to say there's more than one way actually breaks almost every rule of non-contradiction possible and it makes it logically incoherent. And thirdly, it abolishes the character of God, which is what our whole belief system is based on, that he is compassionate and loving and forthwith, and that he tells the truth and that he is not a liar. He is not crazy. He's not perverse in his nature. He's not a sadist. He doesn't want, this is what the Bible says, he does, he does not desire that all men would, would move to destruction, but that they would be saved through his son. When we understand those simple principles, and we do so with humility and respect, as the Bible talks to us about in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 3, when we, when we practice those principles rightly and we do so in a way that is winsome, I think we can still stand in our culture 
with all the truth of the scriptures in hand and still do so in a way that is able to intrigue the hearts and the minds of those around us. And to be sure, there's people living in our churches, maybe even living in our homes or sitting beside us in our Bible study who truly believe that all people worship the same God. And I think the only way to truly love them is to look at them with all of the gentleness that the scripture calls us to have and to say, hey, I, I don't think that's actually true. And let me give you in all humility some reasons why. Jesus made it clear, truth has rules and that goes against the character of God. I hope this discussion was helpful for you. I'm excited to hear some of your feedback or if there's another way that, that this conversation can be helpful for you or, or follow-up questions. But as always, we here at Dad Tired love you guys and any way we can equip you, we'd be more than happy to do so. So uh, keep interacting with us, ask your questions and, and let us know how we can serve you better. Hey guys, hope that episode was helpful for you on your journey of becoming more like Jesus and helping your family do the same. As a reminder, if you want to get plugged into the community here at Dad Tired, go to dadtired.com forward slash community. We'd love to see you over in that group. All right. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.